Hello, friends and listeners of the LeaderCast podcast. This is Mo, the producer, jumping on really quick before this episode starts to let you know that we are going to be wrapping up season one of the podcast. The final episode in season one will be coming out on April 23rd. We are going to be coming back with an even better season two later this year. Stay tuned on our socials for updates as we know more, and thank you for being an avid listener. This is the LeaderCast Podcast, helping you be a leader worth following. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the LeaderCast Podcast. I'm Bart, here to take you on a journey up the company food chain. That's right, on this episode of the LeaderCast Podcast, we're talking career advancement, but not the fun topic of, you know, how to seize your dream job or how to become the CEO of a Fortune 500. No, in this episode, I'm talking with Naftali Hoff about the challenges that you will face the first day you sit down in your new leadership chair. Naftali helps leaders who want to increase their leadership capacity and improve their team's effectiveness. He is a performance enhancement coach who helps thousands of executives and leaders each year He has two master's degrees in education and educational leadership, and also has a doctorate in human and organizational psychology. Now, he's on the LeaderCast podcast today because he authored a book called Becoming the New Boss, The New Leader's Guide to Sustained Success, which covers the most important leadership issues with which new leaders have to grapple. So that's what we're going to talk about today. In this episode, Naftali and I discuss the things you can do in your first days on the job as a new leader to lay a groundwork of success for the future, how new leaders can build trust with their new followers, the distinct challenges of balancing leadership and management functions, and things you can do to prepare for the new leadership title you're about to take on. Before we get into this interview, I want you to listen to an ad about LeaderCast and the wonderful ways that we help build the world with leaders worth following. So please listen to this ad and I will catch you on the other side. LeaderCast is committed to filling the world with leaders worth following. Through live event experiences and on-demand education, LeaderCast exists to guide you on your leadership journey. Learn more about what LeaderCast can do for you at LeaderCast.com. So like I said, I am really excited to speak today with Naftali Hoff, who is a very insightful leadership coach. And like I said, he has just authored a new book called Becoming the New Boss, The New Leader's Guide to Sustained Success. And I'm very eager to dive into this book with him. So welcome to the podcast, Naftali. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, I love talking about the book and all things leadership. Well, we obviously talked about that here on the LeaderCast podcast. So my first question is, what got you into this area of leadership coaching and leadership development? Yes, it's an interesting question and certainly did not take a straight line approach to where I am today. In effect, I I, uh, pivoted from school leadership. My background is in education. I was a classroom teacher and college professor, moved into school leadership relatively early on on a part-time basis and then eventually ascended to the role of head of school of an independent school in the Atlanta, Georgia community. 
And I learned quite a bit in a relative short period of time, in addition to what I had already learned and experienced. And for a variety of reasons, I decided that instead of pursuing school leadership further and making that my long-term vocation, which was the plan all along, I instead decided to leverage what I had learned and try to see if I could help other people, in effect, do their work in the best way possible and see if I could leverage my experiences in a way to, to support them. And ultimately, the book that I wrote was designed to be the book that I wish I had. In other words, the book that I think could be very useful, and this is not exclusively, even though the context of school leadership, the the application of it is broader. In other words, my intention, though I do use personal stories and vignettes and things of the sort, I try very hard to make it relevant to corporate leaders uh, as well as small business leaders and um, other nonprofit leaders outside of education because I feel that the challenges to a large degree are, are universal. Right? The idea of understanding what you're getting into, building relationships, um, understanding, frankly, what leadership is all about and the transition from moving from the rank and file, if you will, even on the, on the team management level uh, to becoming the boss, whether that's the boss of the entire entity, a CEO type profile or somebody who is in a greater leadership role than in the past, all of that represents a significant change in what we do, how we do it, and the role in which we, we see ourselves in and how we execute. So although the book was intended and really does speak primarily to what we call new leaders, whether that's literally new or people transitioning within the field, everybody who I shared the book with for feedback, for insight, and then who has, who has purchased it and read it since then, I shouldn't say everybody, but most of the people uh, have told me that the, the concepts there are universal in nature. I would say upwards of 90% of the content could be picked up by somebody who is new, who is 20 years in the field or beyond, and still find value because we still want to continually improve in what we do in, in the leadership space and how we serve others. And the book really unpacks a lot of that. Yeah, you mentioned that it's, you said you wrote the book that you wish that you had. What specifically during the writing process did you learn that you thought, man, that would have been really nice to know back when I was, you know, an active leader in the school? Yeah. So I, I think that the, the question assumes and, and not, not in a bad way. I mean, it's, it's a logical question to ask. It assumes that I started writing the book with a plan. The way that the most authors would write a book. In other words, you map out what it is that you want to include and then you begin the process. I actually kind of reverse engineered the book. What happened was I was, I, I like to write. I certainly was not, um, when I started leadership writing, you know, for many years I've written in other areas, whether education or other topics, parenting even, but I never really focused on leadership per se because that wasn't my professional space, at least not with a focus on leadership in contrast to education, let's call it. But after I pivoted, I wanted very much to write more on the topic. I felt that it would be useful in terms of getting my ideas out there and kind of building my identity, brand, reach, all of the kinds of things we typically do. And I started to identify areas that I thought were of value. And kind of over time, I pulled together what had become at that point many blog posts many of which have been published in places like Huffington Post and Smart Brief and other, and other uh, online platforms, as well as, let's call it, local uh, print uh, papers and whatnot. And I pulled it together, tried to create a timeline, everything from 
the backstory to what leadership is and the leadership role to laying your own foundation in terms of being strategic about transitioning into that space, what you need to do, and then kind of moving from there, identifying areas where I thought there were gaps, and then writing additional posts around those gaps until I had, in effect, a complete manuscript. And then I started working with a publisher to, you know, edit it all and, and, and get everything fully lined up, so to speak, to the point where it could be published. So it wasn't like I went in saying, this is going to be the target audience and this is going to be the, the content that I'm going to present. It was more, I have all this content already. How do I now repurpose it and organize it and bring it into, you know, all under one roof for the benefit of a particular audience? And when I thought that, when I kind of started to think about, well, who can I serve most, at least with this content, and and what message could I convey that would have the greatest value, I said, well, wouldn't have this been nice for me, you know, to have had to be able to not only understand what leadership is, but really the practical elements of it, because it's all nice and good to talk theoretically about leadership as a concept. But it's where the application occurs that's most practical and, and relevant for people. And I knew that while I think I did some great things in school leadership, I also knew I made a bunch of mistakes. And some of those were contextual relating to, you know, who I succeeded in the job and the kind of culture I walked into and expectations around that and timelines for change. You know, a lot of those things all needed to be done, but didn't necessarily need to be done the way that they were done. And in that, you know, looking back in, in retrospect and having an honest vantage point as best as I could, obviously we're all subjective to who we are and what we do, but to the degree that I could be objective in analyzing what I did well and what I didn't do so well and bring that to the to the fore for other people to learn from, you know, I wanted to cut down on people's experience curve because the research is very clear that people who succeed for the long term and have sustained careers in leadership for the most part, unless they have real, let's call it protexia that's that's providing them with with ongoing support. In most cases, it's the first, you know, bunch of months that will seal their future. Because, you know, if they get people behind them, if they build some momentum, if they have a successful runway, then a lot of good things happen afterwards. But if they struggle off the bat, if they, you know, get, get caught up in some, some uh, headwinds and, and get pushed back and things like that, it could often be very difficult for leaders to really bring to the fore all of the goodness and all the quality and all the skill because they've burned some bridges along the way. So it's an important initial piece in a leader's success. Once they get past it, it, I can't say that it's, you know, smooth sailing from there and it's, it's, you know, easy street, but it definitely can be a lot easier because they're already established. They know their people, their people know them. There's a level of comfort and they proceed, you know, in a more typical and conventional fashion. So, so I think the book really addresses an area for people who are struggling to figure out who they are, how they serve, how they get people on board, how they establish relationships, all those things so that they then can really roll up their sleeves later and do the heavy lifting. Well, and I love that viewpoint of your idea that really your sustained success starts almost the, you know, before you even get into that new role, but really that first day in the new job. Because laying a good foundation can help you build for the future. But I do want to kind of go back to a point you made of sometimes you get into this new role 
and you have all these great ideas, but you're not really quite aware of the reality that had been in that role. So there's a lot of different circumstances or plans or ways that things were done. As a new leader, what are the biggest challenges we face in implementing our ideas quickly? Yeah, so the, the, the last word, I think, is the operative word here. You have to determine how quickly or not so quickly mm-hmm. you, you have to begin to implement your ideas. And I think that we're, we're all eager. Let's put it this way. I think we're all eager fundamentally to implement our ideas because we want to demonstrate that we deserve the position that we're, that we're occupying. In other words, we want to demonstrate that we, that they, that they made a good decision in hiring us and that we bring the goods to the, we, they, you know, we bring the goods to the table. On the other hand, some of the best leadership strategy is to try to be patient and, and not rush into making changes for that purpose. And so it, it, it's a different, it's a different approach really. And, uh, there are a number of, um, talks and books and whatnot and, and, and examples, whether it's, um, Steve Jobs coming back to Apple, whether it's the, the main character in, uh, the five dysfunctions of a team. Or, or many other settings, whether real or imagined, where the, the leader really wants to be able to go into their new space and learn as much as they can, learn who the people are, develop those relationships, understand the history, figure out what are the past pain points, how do we go ahead and secure some early wins that are low cost and at the same time do not demand a significant utilization of equity or capital in order to implement so it could be, you know, something as simple as improving the way people get paid or improving the way people get, you know, their information communicated to them or maybe some kind of aesthetic or physical improvement or maybe, you know, some kind of, even if it's relating to the, you know, to the coffee station or whatever, you know, something that's small that allows people to say, oh, this, this person is starting to make improvements. It doesn't cost me anything, me, the, you know, the, the team member, let's say, but at the same time, I can see that they are beginning the process of identifying opportunities and how can we grow. And then as the you know, as the relationship deepens and as you feel you're in a better place, you understand what the challenges are, then you can begin to float ideas out there for feedback and see where are the opportunities. So I talk about, for example, having a making a case for change. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? What are some of the questions we want to be asking? So that ultimately when change is implemented, you can say that there's more People have had opportunity to voice their their thoughts, and people have had opportunity to buy in and and to push back as needed in order to really flesh it out a little bit more, so that when you are moving forward, because change is difficult for everybody, no matter how long they've been in the position, we all have routines, we all have things we like to do, and ways in which we like to do it. So change will be hard for almost everybody, but if we can go into it saying, "Hey." You know, this is change we talked about. This is a change we agreed to. We understand that if we don't do it, here are the implications or the potential threats to our organization, whether using a SWOT analysis or using a case for change, which I detail in the book or any other platform. The point is people start to get a vision of what is the upside, right? What's the potential? What are we shooting for? Why does this change require that? And the flip side of it is what, what is the risk of doing nothing? Mm-hmm. And, and, and then, and, and there are going to be people who don't agree. You know, you can't go for, nor would I recommend that you go for consensus because consensus is really hard to get to unless you're dealing with groupthink, which is not a positive either. <laughs> you know, you want pushback, 
but at the same time, you want it in a way where you still have the momentum. And I remember, for example, we were implementing a a behavior program in our school. You know, we wanted to be able to shift from a general, you know, type of let's call it student handbook where you have certain behaviors that are acceptable, not acceptable, et cetera, where everything is more catch and react to a much more proactive values-based type of program. And there's a national program. It's wonderful without getting into all the details here. The bottom line is we identified four values. We implemented the the behaviors we were looking to see in programs and incentives, all these things around those values. And for the most part, the, the, the staff was on board and they, they saw the value, even if they weren't necessarily all cheerleading the, the endeavor. And I had one teacher who piped up and didn't really see the value in it and started to kind of argue with it, but he did so well into our planning process. And uh-huh. you know, I, co- I could have self-defended. I definitely had enough foundation upon which I could have said, look, you know, this is what we, uh, what we agreed to and on and on that whole thing. But I didn't even need to because a different teacher who actually was not very vocal typically at these meetings, she got up and said, look, you know, we've already discussed this. We've already do, agreed to it. We're well on our way. You know, we're, we're past that stage, you know, <laughs> like that, that ship has sailed. And so sometimes the best way by which to, move forward as you're thinking about change or other similar ideas is how do we get enough momentum behind it so that when it happens, it's almost as if people view it as their idea. And on top of it, it's no longer news because the discussion has already occurred. It's now just a matter of implementing and doing so in a way that ruffles as few feathers as possible. On the other end, going back to your question about quickly versus slowly, it is important to point out, and I do devote a chapter to this in the book as well, that sometimes we need to go into what's called a change situation, right? There's a crisis. There's a financial uh, issue. We're losing market share. There are other scandals or things that rock the company. And so sometimes a leader needs to go in like a proverbial bull in a china shop, obviously still wanting to be strategic, but recognizing that the situation demands decisive, immediate action. So that's a different situation, and though that, and that's rarer in nature. But when it comes to people who are going into organizations, if they educate the ones that they ultimately report to, whether that's a board of directors or others, and say, look, you know, I could walk in here and implement all these changes we've been talking about and do so right away. But I know from experience, or at least I've, I've, I've learned and I've listened to this podcast, so I know that doing so is typically not advisable. I'm going to ask for some runway here, and whether you think that that'll be six months, possibly even to to a year, where you're going to uh, target some of the bigger pieces. And in the meantime, I'm going to be working towards understanding the culture, understanding the structure, uh, listening well, developing relationships, making some small changes initially, just to get some kind of momentum, and then you know circle back to you as I know more, maybe in anywhere between. I would say, you know, one to three months and say, this is what I've learned. This is what I think is more realistic at this point. You know, let's start planning around that. And then those people are, are more willingly accepting what it is that you put out there. So it's managing up. It's leading up. It's managing expectations on the change side. And that's another mistake that I made from inexperience. In other words, I did not know. I knew that there was a mandate for change because even though we were it was a blue ribbon school of, of excellence, which I did not do anything for because that predated <laughs> me by a couple of years. But even so, there was a lot of recognition from the search committee, from the board of directors and from people in the community that there were gaps in the school that needed to be addressed. And so I thought, hey, I'll just walk in there and demonstrate 
how great I am and make all those changes. And I didn't do it with enough pause and strategy. And that ultimately required me to backtrack and deal with a lot of, uh, let's call it relational repair. Mm-hmm. So, so again, if I would have gone into it and managed that more effectively and known more about what this all entails, then I would have probably dealt with it differently and gained more support along the way. And that's, again, why I think a book like this could be useful because you don't even know often what you don't know until you go in there. And so it's a matter of, you know, shortening the the experiential runway so that you have more information from the beginning and that you can secure agreements, understandings, and partnerships uh, that are more effective from day one because you know what processes like these typically require. Developing world-class leaders in your community is now easier than ever with LeaderCast. In addition to our flagship May event, becoming a presenting partner allows you to stream multiple events per year, each with an opportunity to earn money. The new LeaderCast lets you invite 1 to 1,000 people with unlimited streaming opportunities. Check out more at LeaderCast.com or the link in our bio. And I, I enjoy this thought that obviously all humans are willing to change, but reluctant maybe to change. <laughs> and especially when a new person comes in, they may, they always have some doubt, some, they don't have any trust built up. It may not be mistrust, but there's, there's no real basis for trust with this new person. So I, I do want to ask, because I think the point of all this is you're trying to build trust among these new you know, followers or your new teammates. So what are some very easy and quick ways that we can build trust among our new, our new teammates, our new followers, even our new, you know, as you said, our new direct reports? Yeah, it's a, it's a very important and often overlooked question. And so thank you for raising it. It's interesting because I'm actually in the process of putting out an ebook on what I call the three eyes of effective leadership. Okay. And the I stand for integrity, influence, and impact. I'm not going to, I'm not going to unpack all of them now. I do talk about this in the book in different ways as well, but trust really falls into that first category of integrity because a person who is consistent, uh, in, in physical appearance, in the way that they deliver on what they say they're going to do, that they have values that are clearly defined in their own mind and then communicated to others, whether they're personal values or ultimately team values that are developed and, and maintained. Like, for example, you may want to use values to help define your hiring process, your onboarding process, mm. you know, how decisions are made budgetarily. All of these things ultimately emerge from what your values are, what you prioritize. And there are tools you can use to determine which values take precedence or priority because you have, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of values in theory, and all of them seem to be good right? Seem to be things we want to aspire to, but they sometimes have, there are conflicts, right? Medical ethics is an area and business ethics to a lesser degree are areas where there's oftentimes a conflict in, mm-hmm. in values and you have to determine what takes priority and, and, and what ultimately, you know, reigns supreme. So without getting too much into the weeds on the value side, if a person is a person of integrity, that alone, people will see that, they will sense mm-hmm. it, and that will help to build trust. There is another model that Ken Blanchard and with Cheryl Olmsted, it's called the ABCD trust model. 
It's able, believable, connected, and dependable. Okay, so able is that you, you, you resolve problems, you develop skills, you get quality results. Believable is about keeping confidences. It's admitting when you're wrong. It's acting, in essence, with integrity. Connected is about being connected, listening well, uh, showing interest in others, working well with people. And then dependable is being the responsible person, responsive, mm-hmm. organized, timely, uh, accountable, things like this. And so each of them have value, right? All, they're all important. I don't think anybody would say that you should, you know, mess up any of them. We, we all have personal strengths in areas where we're stronger, perhaps in these quadrants than others. And just in general, as a side point, oftentimes we think as leaders that we want to be good at everything. I mean, just not, not even as leaders, as people, we want to be good at everything. We want to have what we might call general competence in all areas. But real leadership in most cases is about managing your weaknesses while accentuating your strengths. In other words, it's about identifying what are you really, really good at? Where's your passion? Where's the nexus between those? And how could you drive those to the highest level and then utilize delegation and other similar techniques to find the right people around you to support you and the team and the company or organization in areas where you don't have that same level of competency. So if you're not super dependable, for example, you may need to have somebody who manages your calendar and uh, make sure that you go to where you need to be in this kind of thing so that you could do what you're really good at, which is, you know, I have a client, for example, in real estate who's just, I'll use the Yiddish for a moment. He's a schmoozer. You know, he's a great, he's a great people person. He talks to people. He, he just lo- loves to. And for me, by the way, that's very difficult because I, I'm a card carrying introvert. And without getting into all the specifics of introversion and extroversion, all the benefits. And that, by the way, was a side piece because my predecessor was an extrovert and I was an introvert and the, everybody just schmoozed with him. And that wasn't my thing. You know, that, that's all part of what you need to be thinking about. So you might be great at being connected with others, but you're just not organized very well and you'll follow, you'll forget to follow up and you just won't be, you know, where you say you'll be or how you'll show up and this kind of thing. So maybe you need to find somebody else to help you become at least satisfactory in the area of being dependable so that your greatness in the area of being connected can really shine through. And it won't be viewed as having this huge disconnect and, 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 and massive gap between different quadrants of your trustability uh, or, or trust factor. So these are things that obviously we're just touching on the surfaces of them. Uh, but these are things where if you can follow the ABCD model, be a person of integrity, kind of, you know, walk the, walk the talk and show up every day ready to connect with others. I think in most cases, you're going to build a lot of that very quickly, and that will allow you to then move forward with all of the various initiatives that you think are necessary to help grow the company or move it in a different direction. Well, that speaks to me. I definitely am on the very good at the connected side. Definitely have some areas of improvement and the other three areas of trust factor. So uh, it's a very relevant anecdote that you shared there. (laughs) I, I think all of us, if we're honest, would have the same thing. And I believe that there, I'm pretty sure there's an assessment, but it definitely is important to emphasize or reemphasize that oftentimes when it comes to leadership, it's no longer about technical skill. Mm-hmm. You know, what it is that I'm capable of doing that might have gotten you to where you are today, but now there's a new set of expectations. So for example, in an educational context, you might be a great classroom teacher. 
but what are you going to be able to do to become a school leader and really motivate others? Because it's a totally different set of skills. Your communication needs to be stronger. You need to be able to think about, you know, the big picture, not just your little neck of the woods. And I think that's true for any type of organization or company, right? You rise up the ranks, you do what you do very well, but the pivot now has to go from me to we, not only because it's no longer about getting recognized per se, but it's really about pulling together the attributes, qualities, skills, and talents of your team. And so the best leaders know that they don't have to be the ones doing the heavy lifting necessarily as much as putting, getting the right people. And then as, as Jim Collins would call it, you know, getting the right people on the bus and then positioning them for success and figuring out what can I do in more of a servant role that's going to empower my people, give them the tools to succeed and then ensure that they step forward and get the work done. Well, again, we're here with Naftali Hoff, the author of Becoming the New Boss, The New Leader's Guide to Sustained Success. And he is a performance coach, uh, performance accelerator, I think is the way that you describe yourself. And I love that term. You, you just kind of talked about this challenge of being an extreme performer and then having to transition into a leadership role. And I, I want to touch on that real quick, because I think that's one of the biggest challenges of becoming an actual leader. And for most people, our first real leadership role would be, you know, a manager or director of maybe a department or, or something, you know, a sales manager, sales director. But when you take on that leadership role, when you take on that role of having to manage other people, you know, you're not performing the same way. So you have to adapt your your personality a little bit, or adapt your your way of thinking, adapt your day-to-day processes, what are some ways that we can prepare for that transition from the high performer to the people-focused manager or leader? And and we'll talk about the difference between management and leadership in a little bit, but just going from being a performer to a manager and, and how can we prepare ourselves for that? It's a It's a difficult question to answer in the sense that it requires more of a rewiring I guess, in the way that we think. But I think that's really the most important piece here is that we have to start to think about how success is measured and what our role is, right? Because oftentimes in the past, we just walk into the office, we roll up our sleeves. You talked about sales, so we could talk about that. It's a matter of picking up the phone, getting my calls in, following up with leads, all of those kinds of processes. And there's no, it's a very, relatively speaking, it's a narrow and myopic focus. It's about doing the work and getting it done. But now I have to take a step back and say to myself, well, what do I as leader need to be doing? Am I doing sales? That certainly could still be part of what of your role. But you also need to be thinking about how do you get your people to perform better, identify you know, uh, your staffing levels, identify what your goals are, and ensure that you continue to move towards your metric that you've set for yourself together with your team's help. So it's a matter of reimagining your work, reimagining your role, start to identify what are those actions that if you do on a regular basis are going to produce the best results or the most impactful results in your new role. And then keep those front, you know, front and center visually available to you so that it's continually top of mind for you. And then what you want to do, like for anyone who wants to be productive, is to start blocking out time, start scheduling the things that need to get done, whether it's meeting with team members, 
making calls, following up with constituents, you know, planning for meetings or other types of things, all of that, the more scheduled it is, the more you will ultimately, you know, be effective because to be a leader now means to be pulled in a thousand different directions. And it's through goal setting, it's through time blocking, it's through, you know, shutting, you know, powering down so that you could power up at a later point. All of these are strategies that leaders can be using once they know Again, what is it that I need to be doing that's going to give me the greatest chance of success? And if you're not sure, and that, by the way, is an important piece to, to, to unpack briefly as well, because oftentimes, frankly, we don't know what we need to do or what's going to drive the most success. Uh, in our scenario, somebody who's been a sales rep for a long time or maybe been managing a team, they, they still have a certain limited view on what needs to happen. And there are certain aspects that they've never been tasked to deal with that now all of a sudden they're responsible for. So they may do very well getting a coach or even in some respects, even better, a mentor, somebody who's walked a mile in their shoes, somebody who could say, these are the things you need to be doing. See, mentoring and coaching, even though they're often lumped together, they're really not the same. A mentor is more about been there, done that. This is what I think. Obviously, a mentor wants to still use a coach approach, which we'll unpack in a second. But fundamentally, a mentor wants to be able to lead from experience, where a coach is not walking in typically with an agenda. A coach is walking in and saying, you're the expert. You know what you need to know deep down. My job is to help you identify what those are, unpack it, create awareness around it, and then take definitive action that's going to lead you to a better place. So uh, a coach is someone you typically will pay. A mentor is oftentimes somebody who's volunteering their service, although perhaps there's a, a financial arrangement. But the point is, usually a coach is more invested because a mentor is typically doing you more of a favor. But each one has value. And you really do want to find a mentor, if you can, who can give you, even if they're not, better to find somebody who's, whose experiences don't line up exactly with what you're trying to do, but have other qualities good listener, invested in your success, things like this, which I do unpack in the book, rather than have somebody who has an exact replica of your timeline and of your history, but as a person, really doesn't have the qualities necessary or desirable to be the mentor that you're looking for. And I enjoy your discussion of the difference between coaching and mentoring, because I think we all whether we know it or not, we have mentors in our life, but you know, a coach is really someone who can take time to fully understand your actual situation. And obviously you're in a position where you, you coach other leaders. So I'm, I'm curious what steps you take to help understand and help other people perform better in a leadership role. So, I mean, my, my personal approach is a little bit less proscripted than perhaps other coaches. You know, some okay. coaches use, use a, you know, a five step plan or whatever their, whatever their language is that let's use this assessment. Let's, let's follow this particular path. And then, you know, that, that's how they do their coaching. I usually try to reverse engineer it by thinking about what are your biggest challenges. Okay. And sometimes people don't even know what they don't know. So I have to help them by asking questions. What about this? What about this? What about this? And then we kind of take it from there. But in most cases, it's about. You know, what are you working on? What are your challenges? What are the things that you think will, add, will, will provide the greatest value for you? So it's not like I'm walking in and saying, here's my curriculum. It's more, let me hear what you are experiencing 
And then let's go from there and see what action you can take and what things you can work on that's going to drive, you know, your, your team and your company's success. So once, like I said, so once we have that, it can go in, in, in a hundred different directions. Somebody mm-hmm. feels that they want to have a greater impact as a leader. So we'll work on their executive presence. Somebody feels that they have historically not had great people skills. So we'll work on enhancing those, their emotional intelligence. We'll use an assessment often. Um, we'll unpack what those soft skills or human skills are that people need and why those are important. And then try to identify areas where we can improve. All of these things will be driven by the initial conversations and the, you know, the, the intake. But from there, we try to become very strategic and then stay focused on what are you going to do between now and our next session that's going to move you closer to your goal. And how can we, you know, measure that quantifiably to know that you've made progress or not? Like you thinking about the smart model, for example. So you want your goal to be specific. You also want it to be measurable, right? That's the SM of smart goals. Because, um, once I know very specifically what I want to do and I can measure, right? For example, if I want to become more influential as a leader, that's a very difficult thing to measure. What does that look like? Right. right? Where are you now? And so we'll use maybe a scaling exercise, like a one to 10. What would, what would the most influential leader look like to you? That would be a 10. What would a least influential person look like to you? Very ineffective. That would be our one. And then we identify where do you think you are today and why do you think so? And the person might say a five, a six, a seven, right? And then once we have that number, let's say it's a six, how do we move you to an eight? Right? We're not going to go from six to 10 because that's typically too big a leap, but how do we move you incrementally along the path? What steps need to be taken? This kind of thing. So it creates a visual and it creates a goal and the actions that you're going to take are measurable and concrete enough that you can then hope that you're moving along. So it might be, I'm going to schedule more meetings with my team. I'm going to identify my personal values and communicate them with others. I'm going to sit my team down around a value sheet and see if we couldn't identify what are our company values that we could communicate internally, you know, on our website, to our constituents and to others so that everybody knows really who we are, what we stand for. It's like what Simon Sinek would call knowing your why. What really drives you? as a team, a company, et cetera. All of these things are ways by which to become more influential. And once you do it in a concrete way, you could check it off and say, yes, I did it. And this is what I think the impact was of that. And based off of that, now maybe I've moved up a little bit. You know, here's something else that we can consider doing. And so it follows that process. Now, I want to, I said I wanted to talk about this specific question. So I'm going to bring it up now because I think this is kind of building off of what you just talked about. There's a huge difference between managing and leading people. But oftentimes, as we actually every time we move up the ladder, we're grabbing more managerial roles, but also taking on more leadership roles. How do we navigate those two levers, if you will? You know, sometimes you got to dial up more management. Sometimes you dial up more leadership. How do we navigate those waters of management versus leadership? Right. And and I think it is important to say, number one, that they're different. And number two, that we need both. Right. So, so for, because oftentimes, you know, leadership gets all of the, you know, it's the, it's the more exciting or enticing term, perhaps. Uh, but it's not, term. But, but you can say it. I wanted to keep this as a uh, family program. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but the point is, so, so, uh, John Cotter, for example, a leadership guru. So he says, just to quote him for a moment, we need superb management and we need more superb leadership. 
We need to be able to make our complex organizations reliable and efficient. So that's a management term. We need them to jump into the future, the right future, at an accelerated pace, no matter the size of the changes required to make that happen. And that, of course, is a leadership angle. So it's a matter of, you talk about a ladder. So Stephen Covey talks about management being efficiently climbing the ladder, whereas leadership is determining is the ladder up against the right wall, right? So it's two parts of the same coin. One is creating the vision, the direction, thinking out into the future. Where are we today? Where do we want to go? And what are the steps we need to take? And once that's in place, management is about making it happen. So it's less dramatic because it's more the day-to-day grind. It's more the oversight of process. It's less about, you know, taking people to, to the hilltops. But if you only have leadership and you're all about vision and you can't then, you know, uh, implement and actualize that vision, then you're really not going to be super effective either. So whether it's you taking on the leadership and the management roles and wearing different hats at different times or having managers or members of the team that will make the, the, the vision come to life where you're providing the, the impetus for that and the direction, that's all fine and good. And every circumstance may be different, but you do need to have both and you need to have the right kind of personalities leading both. And then they put those processes in, into effect and they do a great job managing those. And some people have more of a innovative, and creative way of looking at things and can see things beyond the here and now. And those are the kind of people who, if they have the other qualities, right, they still have to connect with people and they still have to, you know, be able to, to, to bridge the gap between their vision and the people who are going to make it happen. But those are typically the kind of people that can lead because they can motivate. They can, you know, um, drive people beyond where they are today. And, and change is so, so important in our environment because we live in a world where change is just the new normal. And so if we're not able to think beyond the processes of the here and now, we really can't be prepared for tomorrow. And then somebody's going to walk in and is going to do what we do and do it better. And then we're going to lose our competitive advantage and who knows what's going to happen with our company. So you really do need both. Well, I appreciate that insight. And I I do want to now transition to the final leadership question I have for you, which is, we talked about leadership, we talked about management, but and we talked about the ways that we can make an impact early on in our new leadership roles. But overall, what would you say defines a leader worth following? Oftentimes we have this Hollywood vision of what of what great leadership is. You know, we we see people who are very charismatic, they're great in front of the camera, maybe they're doing all sorts of exciting things. And they find a way, intentionally or not, to have the spotlight shine on them. But oftentimes the greatest leaders, so we don't even know based on my answer that these are leaders worth following necessarily, but oftentimes the greatest leaders are what Jim Collins calls the level five leaders. Often they're introverts. Often they they stay out of the limelight. They're focused mainly on getting really, really clear about not only who they are, what their company does, what is our strategy? And then being very focused on execution of that strategy, not so much about get, you know drawing personal attention to, to their work, but serving the people around them. And so I think, you know, you, it's not like you necessarily, if you're in a company, you can't choose your leader, but certainly if you have the opportunity, if you're choosing between 
cultures or environments, let's say you're, you're trying to select a position, you have a couple of opportunities in front of you, you may want to go into the space where it is understood that you can operate from a perspective of supporting others, where the notion of servant leadership is really the priority and that, that we are going to focus less on garnering media attention and things like that and just making sure that we're doing our jobs well. Because in most cases, if you do that and you're strategically aligned in those kinds of things, all the accolades will follow. But if you have a situation where somebody like a Lee Iacocca type personality who's always about grabbing the spotlight, in most cases, those don't end well. And so I think that whether you are moving into the position, you're in a position, you're looking, you're looking to hire somebody and onboard them into leadership, you know, understanding where their priorities are and the fact that ultimately they recognize that they cannot do great things alone. And great things only come through teamwork and team development and all of that. If that is something that is prioritized and emphasized in the conversation, that person in most cases will deliver great results. Well, thank you so much for all this very intellectual thought on leadership and how we navigate those weird journeys from performing to managing and leading. You have a lot to say about this topic and you have a lot of resources about it. Where is the best way that we can find this wisdom that you have? Thank you very much for the question. The best place to go is to my website, impactfulcoaching.com. And uh, you could find out everything from the specific services that I offer, as well as a blog and leadership podcast that I have of my own, where I invite great uh, success, you know, leadership successes to the conversation about what leadership is and how one can augment their leadership in the work of others, as well as find me on social media. LinkedIn is where I hang out most, but I have, I'm active on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you're interested in getting a copy of this book, which I think has a lot of resources, unpacks a lot more even than what we've been able to discuss, you could find it on Amazon. Again, the book is entitled Becoming the New Boss. And, you know, certainly would love to get your feedback if you do grab a copy. Well, thank you again so much for joining us here on this episode of the LeaderCast podcast. It was very enlightening and hope that you are able to contribute with us in the future. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Now you can listen to all of our episodes of the LeaderCast podcast on leadercast.com, Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcatcher that you may have. Don't forget to interact with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and use hashtag leadercastpodcast to interact with the show. Now, thanks for listening and go be a leader worth following. Thanks for tuning in to the LeaderCast podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. In today's ultra-competitive job market, top-tier talent are leaving companies in search of top-tier professional development. Now more than ever, you must invest in your emerging leaders. LeaderCast 365 is a world-class professional development system featuring access to three annual LeaderCast events, a post-event journey to activate the inspiration and insights gained from LeaderCast events, plug-and-play lunch-and-learn programs with group discussion questions, concise video courses to address weaknesses and build upon strengths, and our library of more than 1,200 short-form videos from a slate of industry experts organized into 16 key professional development categories. 
invest in your all-star employees, and attract new top talent to join them with LeaderCast 365.